Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike and your host, and this episode we chat to Paddy O'Flynn as he talks about flying the Lightning, the Phantom, Tornado 3, and being on the BBMF flying the Spitfire and Hurricane. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrew interview where you can help us out for as little as $1 per month. You can also donate by going to aircrewinterview.tv forward slash donate. Thank you and enjoy. So Paddy, when did you first become interested in aviation? Oh, I guess when I was about uh, 12 or 13 years old. Um, I read Douglas Bowder's story, Reach for the Sky, and uh, that convinced me that <laughs> I really wanted... I'd, I'd built model aeroplanes before then um, and crashed them. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so that's when I got interested, really. So what year did you join the RAF, and what are the, uh, some of the aircraft you started training on? Well, I joined in '59 um, as an RAF apprentice, um, because I, I couldn't get the requisite number of A-levels um, to go flying. So I did a three-year apprenticeship, and fortunately at the end of my three years, the RAF was short of pilots and navigators, and uh, I was able to retrain, or train as a pilot. Um, so I started flying in 1962, um, and uh, I was very lucky I carried on flying aeroplanes as such up until about uh, 1996 uh, when I moved into simulator training. Uh, Age 53 was probably getting on a bit to fly modern fighters. Um, So then I worked in the simulator uh, until about 2006 or so. Um, So So what was your first uh, frontline aircraft? Um, well, we trained on the Hunter, which was still a frontline aircraft, um, but that was pre-Lightning training. Um, so the Lightning was the first aircraft I flew operationally. And what was that like to fly? Well, quite daunting. Um, I think I was about 22 when I climbed into my first Lightning. And, uh, well, we're going to look at that Lightning because it's parked not far from where we're talking. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't actually the first one because it was a single-seater. Mm-hmm. Um, so we... We flew the two-seat first, um, and uh, then I flew Lightnings for the whole of my first tour on the 19 Squadron, um, initially at Leckenfield, and then the squadron moved to Goodersloe, the first time a Lightning Squadron had been deployed permanently overseas, um, and I flew at Goodersloe for about three years um, before the Phantom came along. Mm-hmm. So how many years would you have spent on Lightnings then before you moved to Phantoms? That would have been about three and a half years. Three and a half years. And then, so how was it going from the Lightning to the Phantom? Well, that was very interesting because, of course, I went from single seat to two seat and uh, I had to learn to cooperate with somebody else in the aeroplane. But uh, I very quickly realised there was a lot more I could do um, because the other pair of eyes was busy handling some of the avionics and, of course, two pairs of eyes were looking out. Um, and I became firmly convinced quite early um, the effectiveness of having two crew members. Mm-hmm. I do admire the people who still fly single seat today, but uh, I think when the weather's bad um, and you're at low level um, or in the dark, it's better to have two people in the aeroplane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, yes. So was it a big leap forward coming from the Lightning? Uh, it wasn't actually a leap forward in performance terms. Um, in many respects, it was... Um, more comfortable because we had more fuel. Um, the principal difficulty in the Lightning was uh, shortage of fuel, particularly in the early days because they were all short-range Lightnings with small ventrals. And if you got 45 minutes out of it, the boss was happy for the flying hours target. And if you 
did too much time in reheat, you were down to about 15 minutes from takeoff to landing. Um, and landing were not very much fuel. So in many ways, the Phantom was more relaxed um, because you had more fuel than you knew what to do with. You can generally recognize an ex-Lightning pilot because he checks the fuel gauge about every 10 seconds. <laughs> so what squadrons were you with on the Phantom? Uh, I joined Six Squadron. Um, Six was the first Phantom Squadron um, with the FGR-2. Um, and I flew the Phantom with Six Squadron until 74. And then I had an exchange tour in the States on the 310th Tactical Fighter Training Squadron. Um, and I came back from there, unfortunately, to a staff job because the uh, guy who did the postings, I think he figured I'd just had a good deal, so it was time for a bad one. And it was a bad one. <laughs> so how did the Phantom Fen DACT with the types of the time? Well, it's quite interesting because um, we didn't do a great deal of DACT on 6th Squadron. It was a multi-role squadron, but we spent a lot of time concentrating on low-level ground attack. Um, and night ground attack. In the States, it was a different story because it was still multi-role that they were training for, um, but it was immediately post-Vietnam. And uh, the Navy had done better than the Air Force in Vietnam. Um, so the Air Force was really concentrating hard on improving um, dissimilar air combat training. Um, I don't know whether that was inspired by the you know, having the Navy doing better in Vietnam. But um, at that time, there was a huge emphasis on, on aggressor training and uh, visual combat training. Um, so that was quite rewarding. Mm-hmm. And how many years did you spend on Phantom before you moved on to Tornado? Um, well, I joined my first Phantom Squadron in 68, and I moved to Tornado about 1985. Mm-hmm. And how did you feel about this move? Um, well, mixed feelings, because, of course, um, in the early days of the Tornado F3, um, it didn't do anything like as good a job as the Phantom. Um, so a step backwards operationally was not particularly welcome um, to a lot of people. Um, initially, they came with no radar. Um, then eventually the radar appeared, but um, frequently it misled you quite badly. Um, and uh, one's reputation um, suffered enormously. And for a long time, it was a bit of a joke, um, Mm. but a very poor one for the people who were flying it. Mm -hmm. So would you say it was a popular aircraft uh, amongst the crews? In terms of the airframe and the engine combination, um, reasonably popular, yes. Um, But the avionics, particularly the radar, um, let the whole weapon system down so badly, um, it was frustrating, to say the least. Yeah. You also spent some time in Darwin. Can you talk us through this? Yes, at the end of my Air Force life, or almost at the end, I I was seconded to British Aerospace, um, to Saudi, because I recognised that I was probably heading for another staff tour if if I stayed in UK, in the regular Air Force. Um, So I volunteered to be seconded, um, went to Saudi, and I think I flew with the Saudis in the F3 for about three or four years, um, and then moved to the simulator um, and joined the company, British Aerospace. Mm -hmm. And overall, did you enjoy your time on Tornado? Uh, yes, because uh, towards the end, um, I spent some time on the OEU and we recognised all the things that needed to be done to the aircraft. And over the few years following, um, the things that needed to be done were gradually done. Um, it, it suffered initially from the same thing the Jaguar suffered from. Um, people told the world how wonderful it was. And it's very difficult to go back 
from that position and tell them how bad it is. Um, and fortunately that happened and people listened. Um, and despite the protests, um, more money was spent. And at the end of the Tornado F3, um, and I only saw this in the simulator, unfortunately, um, with AMRAM and ASRAM and uh, Datalink, um, it was an incredibly effective weapon system for, for air-to-air. Um, and it still would be today. Mm-hmm. So you and think it, it was retired too early? Uh, well, yes and no. Um, if you need the money for something else, then obviously you have to retire it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it was, like several other aircraft, at the end of its life, incredibly effective. And uh, yes, it could have gone on for many years. This could be a, a difficult one or an easy one. Which do you uh, prefer to fly, the Phantom, the Lightning or the Tornado? Without doubt the Phantom, because it was enormously uh, capable. Um, we joined Six Squadron uh, multi-role at the beginning, um, and so we did reconnaissance, we did ground attack, um, day and night. Um, we did air-to-air, um, obviously not as much as a pure fighter would have done. Um, and it did all those roles incredibly well um, in its day, and it would still be reasonably effective now. Um, but of course, like the tornado, it has no stealth capability. Um, <laughs> but armed with modern weapons, uh, it would still be a, a force to be reckoned with. So Paddy, you also became a pilot on the BBMF. Can you tell us about this? Yes, I was incredibly fortunate um, because uh, a certain limited number of people at RAF Coningsby at the time um, were able to fly the Spitfire and Hurricane um, as volunteers. Um, well, who wouldn't? <laughs> of course. So how many people are, would apply, and was it a hard selection process? Well, I don't think you ever knew how many applied. Mm-hmm. Um, I think selection was based on ability, or, or your perceived ability, um, and uh, if they thought you were good enough, um, provided you had some longevity, because there's no point in giving somebody the, the role for six months if they're going to leave. Yeah. Um, so it was being in the right place at the right time mm-hmm. with the recognition that you might be able to do it safely. Mm-hmm. So would you be applying for both the Spitfire and Hurricane or would it be one or the other? Uh, you'd apply probably to fly the fighters, mm-hmm. which would be both Hurricane and Spitfire. Mm-hmm. Um, or you would apply to fly the bomber either as a pilot or navigator. Um, we didn't have anybody in the Coningsby who would volunteer to be an engineer or do the other roles, but, um, but that's because we only had pilots and navigators. Yeah. So what year did you get selected and can you talk us through uh, the initial training? I think it was around about 85, 86. Um, the initial training was to build up tailwheel time in the chipmunk. Um, and then there were a couple of trips in the Harvard. Um, and then it was into the Hurricane initially. Um, and when you had some experience on the Hurricane, then you do the same thing with the Spitfire. Mm-hmm. And being obviously an older aircraft coming from fighters, was it a difficult process to learn? A completely different type of aircraft to fly. Yes, and you had to obviously become accustomed to tailwheel time, as I've mentioned. Um, you had to become accustomed to flying a big piston engine, um, and you had to become accustomed to the fact that every time you moved the power lever, then you also had to move the rudder. When, and generally in the fast jet world, the rudder was only used for taxiing, and that was to operate the nose wheel steering in many types. Um, <laughs> you didn't need it much in the air. So was there any modern systems in the aircraft at this point? The only modern system, I think, was in one of the Mark 19s, Pierce 915, which had been refurbished by British Aerospace. And that had a 
a master warning system, which mm. was incredibly useful on one occasion because it, it, it gave me early warning of loss of oil pressure. Um, and uh, I think 915 also had an IFF equipment, which the others didn't have. So, okay. um, but that was a one-off. Mm-hmm. And we have to talk about your first flight in the Spitfire in the Hurricane. What was that like? Well, it was quite interesting. The, the, the Hurricane was a lot easier to fly than the Spitfire, which is why you normally started in the Hurricane. Uh, and it was easier in that it had wider track undercarriage, um, so handling on the ground wasn't near as tricky as the, uh, the lighter weight Spitfires. Um, but, uh, yeah, you had a, suddenly found yourself taking off with a, a cockpit full of vibration, um, the like of which you'd not been used to before. Um, and... Uh, I can't remember in the Hurricane. I think, I think in both Hurricane and the Spitfire, you had to swap hands to raise the gear, that sort of thing. And you can normally see the inexperience because about the time the gear has to come up, you see the aircraft wobble, and it's, it's normally changing hands. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I watched several people on their first trips, and, and I hope mine wasn't as bad as theirs because <laughs> everybody had difficulty, I think, yeah, of, of one sort or another. So what, uh, what kind of flying would you do in your training before you got sent or to the public to the air shows? Well, you had to um, do enough familiarization training, obviously, to be able to fly the aeroplane. Um, you then had to practice your display sequence. Um, and finally, before you were let loose on the air show circuit, you had to pass the, the annual certification by the air officer commanding, who would come along to Coningsby for the, for the morning or the day and uh, watch everybody's display to make sure they were safe and competent. A bit nervous was that at that time? Well, you had to make sure you didn't do anything wrong. Um, but uh, by that time, you hopefully knew what you were doing. Yes. And obviously, we're talking about display um, sequences there. Who planned the display sequences? Was it yourself or was it a team of you? Well, no, I don't think we ever um, had a team doing the display routine planning. Um, I joined the flight and there was a display routine and it stayed that way until I left the flight. So I didn't uh, get involved in any way in, in planning the routine. Mm-hmm. So was there a lot of restrictions in terms of flight hours and what uh, manoeuvres you could pull? Yes, I think uh, we were limited to plus 4G. Um, and maybe we got minus a bit, but we didn't normally like minus G because um, that's when the engine stopped in, with the Merlin engine and the Griffin. Um, and we were limited to plus 6 PSI boost on the, uh, on the Mark 19 um, and yeah, we used plus six on the on the Merlins as well um, for the display, um, plus four for takeoff, from what I remember. Mm-hmm. And well, in combat in the war, they would have been using plus twelve or more wow. um, most of the time. So, so what did their Spitfire do well at air shows, and what did the Hurricane do well? At air shows, um, both did about the same in terms of the routine. Um, it was in combat that the differences between the two aircraft, I think, were most uh, obvious. Um, it's quite interesting because the Spitfire, of course, took all the glory, and people still associate the Spitfire as the, the winner of the Battle of Britain. Um, but in fact, out of the 2,700 or so kills in the Battle of Britain, um, the Hurricane got 1,700 of them or so. So it was by far more, much more successful than the Spitfire in kill ratio. But that doesn't tell the whole story, of course, because there were more hurricanes than Spitfires during the Battle of Britain. Um, And if there was a choice um, between 
Spitfire and Hurricane, the Hurricane generally got vectored to the bombers mm. and the Spitfire towards the fighting, the fighter escort. Wow. Uh, and of course, the bombers were probably a lot easier to shoot down than the fighters. So. But the Hurricane turned better than the Spitfire, so it was more than a match for a 109 that wanted to turn, as I understand it. Um, Spitfire had all the performance edges, um, rate of climb, maximum speed, and so on. Um, but pilots who flew the Hurricane a lot loved it um, because A, it turned well, and B, it was much easier to handle, more rugged. People talked about it as having a, a more stable gun platform, which I can believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, some of the glory of the Hurricane um, is perhaps not remembered to this day because the Spitfire was such the, the, the glamour puss. Uh, I mean, the first Phantom Squadron I joined, for example, number six squadron, um, it really made its mark in the Western Desert um, with the Hurricane 2D, and it had a 40 millimeter cannon strapped underneath it to destroy enemy tanks, mm-hmm. and that apparently was a very effective weapon. Um, and uh, the squadron is still recognised because the badge is a flying can opener. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. Obviously, a lot of our viewers will know, but there's many, many marks of Spitfire. What's basically the difference? Is it an engine upgrades or is it airframe as well? Uh, both. Both. Um, the, the, yeah, it, it was an airframe and engine combination that was, that was well developed through the war, mm-hmm. whereas the Hurricane, of course, stood almost still. Um, <laughs> and it started off as a relatively lightweight fighter um, with a sort of 1,100-1,200 horsepower Merlin engine. And... Uh, then eventually got the Griffin engine, um, which almost doubled its power. But it needed the power because the airframe had to grow too. Um, So it had more drag, it had more weight. um, And if I was given an option of which aircraft I would rather display, I'd rather take the baby, the Mark II or the Mark V. Really? Um, Yeah, because they they felt better to handle. um, And I think the original design was the best one. So talking about air shows, can you tell us some of the venues you displayed at? Um, yeah, from memory, that's a little tricky. Um, Nottingham Tolerton was probably the smallest venue. Um, Biggin Hill, um, we did a display at Manchester um, commemorating one of their birthdays. We did a display at Stansted, again a, a birthday there. Um, International Air Tattoo at uh, Fairford. Um, I was fortunate to get one Farnborough uh, display where we did a bit of formation flying. Um, and that was uh, not quite the same as normal, so that was interesting. Um, and where else did we go? Um, lots of uh, out and backs, um, lots of Joyfuls. These were generally en route displays, or perhaps just a fly past. Um, but we really went all over the place. Um, my one regret was I never got to Jersey, which was an annual outing for the flight. Um, but uh, everywhere else the flight went, I... Mm-hmm. I think I went. So. <laughs> of course. So how did the public react to the Spitfire when you were flying it? It was interesting because um, unlike the Phantom, which I was flying at the time, um, and the Tornado, um, we weren't quite so welcome anywhere because we made a noise. Um, but you can make as much noise as you like with the Spitfire and Hurricane, and, and the crowd loved the noise. Mm-hmm. Um, something distinctive about the Merlin. It, it really is nice. I only ever had one low-flying complaint while I was flying the Spitfire and Hurricane. Who would complain about that? <laughs> uh, well, that's what we thought. <laughs> there was a lady who lived very close to the end of the runway at Coningsby, and after a practice display, 
Um, one day she rang and complained about this very old airplane doing very bad aerobatics and making a horrible noise. Um, it was a few years later that a phantom crashed into one of her outhouses. And uh, I, I just hope somebody had the presence of mind to, to ring and say, next time you complain, we'll come back again. <laughs> Be warned. <laughs> but, but, but no, but the Air Force doesn't do that sort of thing. <laughs> no, of course. So you probably have many, but there's any uh, stories that stick out in your mind from flying the hurricane and the Spitfire? Um, yes, I suppose one. We, we went to Cranfield one evening for a, for a dinner uh, on invite, and I think it was Ginger Lacey who was the guest speaker, and we, we chatted to him in the bar, and, and uh, he said, I bet you've got my modification by now, haven't you? And, and I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, when I was in Burma... He said, uh, we were quite concerned because we, our effectiveness was, was, was reduced by the fact that um, when we uh, started the engine, and I guess he was talking about Mark 19s or, or, or later Marks were Griffin by then, um, when we started the engine, um, the radiator shutters were shut until we reached 85 degrees um, coolant temperature, and then the radiator shutters opened automatically. He said, and my mod was with our engineering officer was to put a switch in the cockpit to select shutters open oh. so that we took longer to reach 85, which is what we really needed on the ground there. Um, but it was rejected by the air ministry at the time because um, they didn't seem to like the idea. Um, he said, I bet you've got it now, haven't you? And I said, yes, we have. <laughs> <laughs> it was in the Mark 19s. Was it? Yeah. So how often would you fly the Spitfire in the Hurricane? Um, not frequently enough, unfortunately. Um, we would get certainly less than 100 hours a year in, in the fighters. Um, and probably a couple of times a month, maybe three times a month, um, sometimes four if you were lucky. Um, generally, you were allocated to the aircraft for the weekend if the flight was traveling around the country. And uh, you would get three or four flights in that one weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and then have a famine for a few weeks before you got some more flying. So you're still operationally uh, on the Phantom at this time? Oh yes, that was, that was the, uh, the job that uh, paid the bills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how long did you spend with the BBMF and did you enjoy it? About three years, and yes I did. I um, thoroughly enjoyed it. I think a very lucky man indeed. Absolutely. <laughs>